You're listening to Igniting Imagination, a podcast to spark the spirit within you from the leadership ministry team at Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation. This season, host Lisa Greenwood, co-host Gil Rindle, and special guests from diverse theological perspectives discuss what core values and truths to carry forward and include in the new emerging church. What values and truths will you carry forward? Join our weekly email, contact us, and find more resources from Leadership Ministry at tmf-fdn.org. Hi, friends. I'm Lisa Greenwood, back with my co-host for this season, my dear friend and colleague, Gil Rendell. Welcome back, Gil. Well, thanks. It's good to be here and good to talk to you again. So in this season, we are exploring themes from Gil's short paper, Jacob's Bones, which is available for free on our website. That link is in our show notes if you need it. So Gil, in your paper, you talk about the I-based culture and the we-based culture. And I thought we might spend a little bit of time defining what we mean by those two cultures and getting into why, as you say in your paper, the I-based culture has not been good for institutions. So let's start with how you would define the difference between the I and we-based cultures. This is one of the key issues I think that the church needs to understand at this moment. And there, there is an ongoing tension, always has been, between the I and the we in our culture. Mm-hmm. And there's a history to it. And I think that what will be really helpful is that as we're talking with Angela today, you're going to hear her work from both of these. And I think that that's really kind of key to understand that, you know, it's we, we don't live in a culture that's either I or we. We live in a culture in which they are always in tension. Yeah. And so uh, when we talk about that, let me, let me see if I can walk through a little bit of a history here as quickly as possible. Uh, first of all, when we talk about a culture, we're talking about what a nation or a group of people value and whatever their value leads to their behaviors. So there's a very close connection here. And in our culture, uh, you know, uh, whatever we value is not static. It changes over time. And one of the things that cyclical historians like uh, William uh, Strauss and Neil Howe tell us is that a lot of the changes are cyclical in nature. They go back and forth. They oscillate back and forth. And in this case, this, this tension between I and we is an ongoing oscillation that we have always had in North America. What we're looking at here is an issue of community cohesion. How much do people feel isolated unto themselves as an individual, which is low community cohesion? They simply experience themselves or seek, you know, uh, what they they are uh, trying to pursue themselves. Or on the other side, how do people see themselves as a we when there is high community cohesion? Okay. Uh, and at different times, our, our nation, our American people have, you know, kind of leaned in one direction or another. Uh, way back into the 1830s when uh, Alex de Tocqueville was uh, observing the America, he talked about we were always seeking a balance between freedom and equality. Uh, interesting thought. Freedom mm-hmm. is an expression of the I. How can I be free? to pursue whatever I want. And yet the other balance of that is equality. How can I be equal with others or invite others to be equal with me? And so all I'm trying to say is that this tension has been going on for an awful long time. And I believe that we are in the moment in which our culture is trying to figure out where we are going to lean next. We have uh, very heavily been in an I culture, uh, you know, freedom for people to, uh, uh, kind of experience their own freedoms uh, and their own liberties and uh, all of uh, that comes with that. But that may have gone so far that uh, now that there is an increased pressure in our culture to push back, to try to find, you know, is there a common good that we can all share? Is there a neutral public where we can talk freely with one another? We're in that tension. We're, we're deeply in that tension. And um, I have a conviction, which I'll continue to work on, that the church has much to offer here uh, because we are essentially a we community, always have been a we community. And so our voice may be more important now than it has been for quite some time. But that tension is there and that that, that difference, uh, you know, um, you know, is critical for us to understand. And as I said, you'll find Angela working with that, uh, you know, the whole sense of of joy, uh, you know, being part of what the uh, the church brings to that conversation. Yeah. So how's that for a, a way in? 
Yeah, well, I, <laughs> in in five minutes or less, tell us all about the I-based culture and the we-based yeah, right. culture and the history of it, <laughs> right? No, that's that's fantastic. Um, so will you say a little bit more? I mean, you have indicated that we've been in an I-based culture for a, a number of years. That's where we find ourselves uh, today and that the pendulum is kind of beginning to swing. But but clearly the I-based culture has affected institutions and specifically right. the church. Can you just say a word about that? Sure. Uh, you know, when a culture leans heavily into its I-values, institutions uh, as a whole do not do well. Uh, I-based cultures are actually rather anti-institutional. And if for no other reason that institutions represent constraints on individual freedoms. Right. Okay. Uh, every time you engage an institution, it wants you it wants you to conform to its disciplines. You know, whether we're talking about, uh, you know, kind of health providers or whether we're talking about your financial advisors or whether we're talking about higher education. Every time you engage an institution, you're being invited into disciplines which make you choose against some of your own pleasures. Okay, so and in freedoms. an I basically, yeah, and freedoms, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, and so given that, uh, you know, uh, if we are in an I-based culture, institutions, uh, you know, in, I, I wouldn't call it hostile environment, but it's not an accommodating environment. It's not a welcoming environment for institutions, and they have to struggle to, to give what they have to offer. Well, and that has been our, our uh, very much our case, our story in the institutional church. If the height of, uh, of uh, community cohesion was in the 1950s, it was about the 1960s, mid-1960s, we began to lose our attractiveness to the culture. Mm-hmm. The further we went into the I-culture, the less attractive uh, we were, and, and so it goes. And so, you know, I mean, it really has affected us. Okay, now, just one last step. If we are going to swing back toward a weak culture, we need institutions more than ever to help us do that. And so at the same time that uh, Christian congregations and, and Jewish congregations and Muslim congregations, you know, at the same time that they have been somehow, in some ways, disinherited by the culture, we're now swinging toward a, a time in which the culture needs them more than ever. And so we've got to be able to understand what it is that we bring. Yeah. So. Uh, this feels really important because, uh, as you said, that the church is, uh, you know, really almost by definition a we culture and seeking common good, which puts us as the uh, Brueggemann's terms, uh, the alter- alternative narrative, narrative right, right in, yeah. in this culture, which is important. And I want to say it's a different kind of we based culture than in 1950. Right. Oh, this my, isn't yeah. about all being the same or this um, what I've heard you call a <laughs> monochromatic veneer. Right. 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 But, but rather to understand we all bring the richness and individuality and uniquenesses of who we are and are, which isn't about me. It can still be about a common good, but honoring the diversity and uniquenesses of who we are. Is that fair? That's absolutely right. You know, this is is not the world trying to make me put ties on like I did in 1950. Uh, You know, this is really all about the interconnectedness that Margaret Wheatley has Mm. been talking about all this time. When do we come to that point that we understand that we are all of one organism? Mm. When is it that we understand that caring for our culture, uh, uh, for our climate, is caring for one another? I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's going back to this part about, you know, uh, moving ahead with happiness is not about me getting what I want. Mm-hmm. It's about us learning how to live with one another. Yeah. One ecosystem with right. a rich biodiversity. Yep. Right? Yep. yep. But interconnected. Right. Yes. And yes. It's, a different, it's a different worldview. How do we help people leave one worldview behind and hold yeah. on to another or claim another? So good. As always, Gil, thanks. So the question at the heart of Gil's paper is, you know, what bones, Jacob's bones, um, that is the, you know, the core truths and practices will rest at the center and be the foundation for a, a new organizational institution, the church that's emerging. So all of our guests this season are helping us to identify these bones, these core truths and practices to carry forward. And and that's certainly true, I think, with today's guest, Angela Gurrell, who 
whose book, The Gravity of Joy, by its very title, (laughs) makes a case for joy as foundational for the church that's emerging. And I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. Um, But first, Gil, will you share Angela's full bio for our listeners? Dr. Angela Williams-Gorell joined Baylor's George W. Truitt Theological Seminary in fall of 2019 as an assistant professor of practical theology. Prior to joining the faculty at Baylor, she was an associate research scholar at Yale Center for Faith and Culture. She was working on the Theology of Joy and the Good Life Project. Uh, She was also a lecturer in Divinity and Humanities at Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut. And she is an ordained pastor with 14 years of ministry experience. She is also the author of Always On, Practicing Faith in a New Media Landscape, and her new book, The Gravity of Joy, A Story of Being Lost and Found. And in that, she shares findings of the Joy Project while addressing America's opioid and suicide crises. So, friends, as we begin our conversation with Angela... I think one of the things that I would want to encourage you to listen for is the way in which she begins to offer joy as one of those gifts that the church has to bring into the culture that we're living in. Uh, you know, she's going to make some different differentiations here. Uh, joy is not really happiness. It's not, you know, trying to find what is most successful and pleasant to you, but it actually is a gift. It's a gift of the spirit that can be brought into the world. And so encourage you to, to listen to the way she talks about this as a gift and how you can help other people find that yeah. gift. And yeah. that, in fact, this may be one of the, the important bones of, uh, mm. uh, of our own church that we need to be able to learn how to carry and recognize it for the gift that it is. Lisa, how about you? One of the things that really stood out to me is how she moved from joy as a gift not unlike grace as a gift from God, moved into some practical ways where we can open ourselves to that joy. Um, So in other words, we don't pursue joy by working harder. And yet there are some ways where we can place ourselves in the midst of of community, where we can have our um, eyes and hearts open to the ways that, that joy might break in. And so I really appreciated how practical she got with us. Let's listen to our conversation with Angela. Hi, Angela. It's great to be with you. Thank you for being willing to join our podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. In your latest book, the first line is so captivating. You say, America's crisis of despair crashed into my life when I was getting paid to think about joy. Can you share with our listeners what you mean by that? And what happened in your own life? Yes, yes, absolutely. I was hired at the Yale Center for Faith and Culture at Yale University in March of 2016 to study joy. And as one might imagine, I was overjoyed (laughs) to be studying joy. (laughs) It was such a gift to finish up my PhD at Fuller Seminary and then to get to go to Yale and teach And then um, think about joy from a Christian perspective as a Christian. Just what is it? How does it, like, how do we cultivate it in our lives? Like, how do we, like, in what ways is God's joy, our joy, and so on. So super excited to, to study joy, to think about it. And then eight months into the project, I received, well, I was, I was at a church and I was hanging out with youth in the basement of the church. And we were playing uh, games because it was one week before Christmas and we were hanging out um, and just doing, you know, uh, we called it reindeer games that day and everything like that. And I I go out to the, um, afterwards, after we clean up everything, I was just a volunteer youth leader at the time. I go out to my car and I realize that I've um, missed seven calls from my mom and nobody wants to find their cell phone and realize they've missed seven calls from a parent because you knew something really terrible had happened. And then I see a text from her and I realized that one of my family members had died by suicide at 30 years old. And 
it was the sort of thing when some when you know someone who's died by suicide, it's just when you find out in that moment, it's this very visceral response of just like, no, like there's no way that this has happened. And I, it was so devastating that it like drove me to my knees in the parking lot of the church, wailing, crying, dropped my cell phone on the pavement, just total, utter sadness, like immediately. And the next week of ministry, um, and, you know, anyone who's listening, who's been somebody who's tried to prepare a funeral for someone who's died by suicide, it's such a devastating thing to try to both honor their life, but also walk, walk through the grief of what has happened. Such a tragic way for someone to die that just, it was like the hardest week of ministry I've ever done. Um, and it was like both I was living it, but also like ministering to my family and very called upon that week as like the pastor of the family <laughs> I'm ordained. And so I did ministry for 14 years before ever becoming a professor or researcher. And so, um, yeah, it was really, really difficult and got back to New Haven, Connecticut, where Yale is. And I really remember thinking, I don't know how my family will ever recover from what has happened. I don't know how we're going to heal from this. And then two weeks later, my nephew died suddenly at 22 years old. He had a previously unknown heart condition. And then five days later, my dad died after 12 years of opioid use. Oh. And um, I know. And so it's like, Three family members died in four weeks. I spoke at all of their funerals and each in their own way, they were very tragic deaths, you know, suicide, sudden death of a young person, and then death after years of opioid use and addiction. And so when I say that like America's crisis of despair crashed into my life, I really am, am meaning more the two deaths that bookended my nephew's which is like suicide and addiction are just happening at astronomical rates in the United States. And so I really do argue in the gravity of joy in my book that I, I think we do have a despair problem. And so here I was at Yale and my job was to study joy. And yet I was drowning in like my own uh, frust, you know, sadness, despair, depression around these issues that have, that have unfortunately touched so many of our lives. Thank you for, for sharing that, Angela. And, um, I, what I hear in that is, um, is as you were studying joy, there was no way you could gloss over real life. There was no way you could go to a place of sort of shallow satisfaction, um, that, that your work necessarily had to be much deeper than that. Yeah, I think when I first, so when I first got to Yale, a lot of people, it was 2016. And so while I was really excited to be studying joy and I was reading everything I could get my hands on, like while, you know, in those first months, there were people that we were trying to partner with and trying to get. So a big part of our job was getting other scholars in across disciplines to join our conversation, to write papers and to study joy from their various perspectives. And when we would invite them to come, a lot of them were like, hello, it's 2016. I don't know if you remember, but that was a hard year in the United States and it's just gotten harder. It feels like over the last six years, but it was, it, there was sort of this sentiment with people of like, isn't there, aren't there more important things that you could be studying in 2016? Mm. And so, but I would, I would defend our work a lot and no, no, like joy, I think there's something here. It's important. And then all of a sudden after these, these four weeks happened in my life, I spent the next year and a half feeling the same way. Like joy is shallow. It's trivial in a world that's suffering. And so in order to write anything about joy, I realized in 2018, if I'm going to write about joy myself, if I'm going to join this conversation, it's going to have to come from a place of honesty and vulnerability. And so I'm going to have to write a book about joy amid suffering. Well, Angel, I think that uh, being able to start with our own real experiences, our own stories, our own lives is terribly important uh, at a point like this. And so if you were going to continue your story and talk about how did you then experience joy or uh, how did joy somehow engage you, uh, what, what is that part of the story? 
Yes. Gil, I love that you said how to joy engage you. I've never put it like that before, but I think that's a very helpful way of putting it. I talk about in the gravity of joy, joy finds us. So joy engages us. Absolutely. Joy is a gift. That is that that's what I the biggest thing that I've learned, I think, is that because I see a lot of sort of pillows stitched or um coffee mugs like with like choose joy. <laughs> and the thing is is that joy as an emotion, and we and I do distinguish joy as an emotion from joy as a virtue, from joy, joyfulness as a characteristic that some people have. And then as an action. And so I think we can choose to rejoice. I think we can choose the action of rejoicing. We can find something good, meaningful, truthful, beautiful in the world, and we can choose to rejoice over it. But the feeling of joy, the effect, the affect, the, the emotion that, that, that overwhelms us is a gift. And Jürgen Moltmann points out that the word for joy and the word for grace are very similar in the Greek, in the mm-hmm. Bible. And so um, they're so similar that it's hard sometimes to distinguish from one from the other. And so you get this sense that both are a gift from God. And so nice. joy is, and that, and anyone, and if I was to ask you, like, when's the last time, like, tell me about a time that you experienced joy. A lot of us will give us about, we'll talk about a time when joy like seized us, when it arrested us, and it just kind of came out of nowhere and then washed over us. And for me, so that one thing that I love about that is that it's not about the emotion of joy is not about more work. It's not about like, you can just try Mm -hmm. harder and then you're going to be more joyful. No, uh, first, you know, so really joy is a gift. Other than the action of rejoicing, I think that the virtue of joy requires the spirit and, and the spirit's help. We have to pray for that. I think that the characteristic of joyfulness happens to be a spiritual gift that some people have, and that's why we need each other in community. Not all of us have the gift of joyfulness, and so we need one another. You know, some of us have the gift of tears or any other number of gifts. And then also the emoji. So I like that it's not about trying harder. Yeah. Mm. Joy mm. is about open hands. Mm. It's about a posture that we have in the world. It's about a readiness Like, God, I know because you are you, because you are the God of impossible, beautiful things, that if I live with open hands, if I live ready, that joy can find me. Your joy can find me. And the the, the other thing I'll say about that is because my friend Andy Rood at Luther Seminary, he describes joy as the very being and presence of God ministering to us. And so if joy is the very being and presence of God ministering to us, joy can always, always find us. And I learned that by being a volunteer chaplain at a prison. So we can talk more about that if you want. <laughs> I, I'd love to hear more. Yeah. You know, so for a year and a half, I lived in the fog of grief. I was at a really, really, really low place when one night at church, a, a couple people stood up who volunteered on this Bible study team at a women's maximum security prison and said, hey, we need more volunteers for the summer. Uh, we need people to come on Wednesday nights and to hang out with these women and, and run this Bible study with us. And there is no reason whatsoever that I should have signed up for this because I did not want to pray at the time. I was really struggling. And I don't know if anyone listening, if you've been there, if you've been really in the midst of, of pain, it's hard sometimes to even want to talk with God. And so I was kind of living on on like the, the hope that just the Spirit was praying on my behalf. <laughs> Romans 8, I was like, okay, hope the Spirit is praying on my behalf. But I didn't want to pray. I wasn't enjoying church. I felt at the end of myself, I felt totally empty. And yet I felt this thing in my in my gut when when they talked about this, like, you should do this. And I was like, me? What? I don't have anything to offer. And yet I just really felt drawn to saying yes to this invitation. And it totally and radically changed my life. Mm. And so anyone who is struggling, who's suffering, who's in pain right now, uh, like the biggest piece of advice or wisdom that I can give after like what my family went through to get on the road to healing is finding a community to of like where you can be honest and vulnerable, where there's no shame. And that will be the place that will help you to get on the road to healing. So I started going on Wednesday nights and sitting in a circle 
with women at this prison. And that's what happened is they were so honest about what they had been through in their lives, honest about their anger, their fear, their sadness, but then also very, very open to God's guidance and direction, really, really believing that God was going to do a work in them, that God was restoring them, renewing them. And all of a sudden, like their prayers became my prayers. And all of a sudden I found myself really reaching out to God in faith in a way, you know. And so in many ways, I describe these women as like the the friends who took their so the, there was the paralytic man on the mat and their friends took, they like did, they dug through a roof. They went through the crowd. They like, you know, and they're like, you've got to heal our friend. And, and then Jesus says like, essentially like their faith has healed you. And that's how I feel about these women in prison. I felt like that their faith and God, like they held faith for me until I could like hold it again. And I think that's one of the greatest lies of like sort of, Protestant Christianity is that we like faith as an individual thing only. And sometimes I think in the midst of really difficult things, we need other people to hold faith for us for a little while. Yeah. yeah. That's a powerful image. It feels to me in a couple of places here, as you're talking about your story and you're talking about the connection of what you've been learning here, that there is this, not a tension between, but rather a connection of making a choice and receiving a gift. And so you choose something that's not actually uh, kind of an, an act of work. You're not trying to make something happen. But by virtue of choosing something, there is a gift in that. And one of the things, uh, there's this delightful book, I'm sure you know it, uh, between the Dalai Lama and Archbishop, Archbishop Tutu about joy. And he tells his story uh, about being cut off in traffic. And he said, you have a choice at that point. You could either, you know, really blast that person for that, uh, you know, really unthinkable thing that he or she just did. Or you can make up a story for yourself and say that person's on the way to the hospital. or They just got word about a relative who has been taken into emergency. And so you pray for them on their way. Okay, so that's a choice. But the the counterpoint to that is that he, he then goes on to say, when you make that choice, it releases you from your anger. And so making that choice, you get a gift. In the same way that I'm hearing you're talking about, you know, uh, at a time in your life when when it was hard for you to move ahead, you chose to be part of that community in the prison to receive the gift of community back, which enabled you in some ways. It wasn't you doing it. It was you simply making a choice that opened, opened the portal for a gift to be received. And I think that I, I think that folk who are so deep into trying to earn their own righteousness don't realize that, uh, you know, um, making choices can simply open them to gifts that are already there. And, and that's part of yeah, what I'm hearing right. in your story. Yeah, we can't receive a gift if our hands are closed. So it starts with that choice to say, yeah, like I'm open to this. And I, and then also, and the open hands too really speaks to your release of anger, you know, what you were drawing on in, in their, the book of joy. Mm -hmm. And so there is something about living with clenched fists that, um, versus living with open hands. That's so essential, I think, to Christian faith and to our journey with God. You talk about the, this, this concept in terms of gateways, that help us be more open to joy. So it's not that we're trying harder to make it happen, but gateways that help us to be open. Can you say a mm-hmm. word about that? Yes, absolutely. I think that we we have multiple ways that are sort of like access points, like ways mm-hmm. of, uh, of being a, more able, I think, to see joy, to recognize it, or to see the things that really elicit joy in our lives. So I, I argue in the gravity of joy, or I tell through story, that I think that joy is the recognition of and connection we feel to meaning, truth, beauty, goodness, and one another. And so to feel, to, to be able to, to have 
to, to be more connected to joy in our life and to really allow it to find us when we're, and to be able to see it when it comes, what we have to do is be open to seeing meaning and truth and goodness and beauty and our connection with other people. And so I like to talk about it. Like we, we walk around with like a flashlight in our hand at all times, basically in life. And so what we shine our light on is what we will see. And so if you wake up each day and you're looking for meaning, for truth, for beauty, for goodness, for connection with others, like you're pretty, you're usually going to find what you're looking for. (laughs) And so it's about, and so these gateways to joy are ways of putting our flashlight out there to look for these things. So one is hope. Jürgen Moltmann also says that um, that hope is the anticipation of joy. Mm. That's how he defines it. And mm. so a lot of people think that the opposite of, of despair is hope. I think that the ultimate counteragent to despair is joy because hope is on its way to joy. So one of the things that we can do is to live as people of hope, which means we are regularly naming our hopes as a community for our neighborhood, for ourselves, for our family, for our friends, for our nation, for the world. And so we live, yeah, so that's one of the practices that we can engage in that I think is a gateway to joy. Another is uh, celebrating the truth. Uh, I really love Christine Pohl. She talks about truth-telling as affirming what is good and true in the world. And so having a regular practice in our community of naming what is good and true, so many, I mean, so much of the time, like our flashlights are what are, are instead like shining on what is wrong and hard and what could be better. And absolutely that is, it's an important part of the church's work in like as prophets, I think to name what is wrong and injustice and everything like that. But at the same time, too, it's like, are we also celebrating the truth, especially about one another? So one of the practices we did in the prison regularly that was really life-giving for everyone was we would put a chair in the center of the circle, and I would write a liturgy um, at different times. We had different liturgies where just like a few lines of truth about one another. And so I would have, you know, Tracy sit in the seat and I would say, Tracy, and then I would read this, these lines over her, like, you are a child of God. You are beautiful. You are, you were made good. Like you have dignity, you know, and then Tracy, you know, would stand up and she would call on someone else. Emily would come and sit down. And so everyone had had an opportunity to have words of truth spoken over them, celebrated over them, and to celebrate the truth over someone else. And it might seem small, but there's something, like there is a power in language, right? Language creates action. And there is a power in telling the truth to one another about who we are and who we are becoming. And so that's another one. Another one is gratitude. Gratitude is a beautiful gateway to joy because gratitude makes it more possible to rejoice, Mm -hmm. right? If we can name the things that are good and beautiful in our lives. Um, Another thing is like getting in the way of beauty. And so one of the practices that I've done during the pandemic that was really helpful to me, kind of weird, but I started following when, (laughs) but I mean, it's been really cool. I started following when there were going to be, I have this app that will tell me when there's going to be a full moon. And whenever there was a full moon, I would set my alarm on my cell phone to go out to my yard and to take in the full moon. Because I'm not a morning person. Like other people might want to do it for the sunrise (laughs) Um, (laughs) or sunset, you know. But there was something about just making an effort to get in the way of beauty that was like, I'm going to go do this and I'm going to soak this up in this moment and look at the light in the dark. And it was really consoling to me, like comforting to me. So those are some of the, the gateways to joy. I really appreciate that you have, in a very tangible way, given practical ways to open ourselves to that joy that mm-hmm. is trying to engage us, right? So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so thanks for yeah, that. Oh, yeah. I should also tell you, too, I mean, one other thing that I think is really like powerful that we did in this circle a lot So I love storytelling prompts, and I give this example in The Gravity of Joy of Nina, who runs story circles, and it's so incredible what she does. So that's in chapter eight of the book. But just a little tidbit of what she does and that we did also in the prison is we would tell about a time when, 
And so sometimes joy is really like, sometimes it's very hard to access joy in our present lives because of everything that we're going through. But the gift of joy is that sometimes joy can be backward looking. And so that we can recall a time when we've experienced joy, we can meditate on it, share it with other people, and sometimes feel that joy a bit again, and sometimes even more acutely. And so I like to call it retrospective joy. And so I see, think one of the things that we can do in small groups, in, in Christian communities, is to do times of regular, like Romans 12 says, mourn with those who are mourning, but also rejoice with those who are rejoicing. So one a story prompt could be, tell about a time when you needed help and help arrived. Or tell about a time when someone was good to you. And it's interesting what happens in a space, in a circle, when we share these sorts of stories. Because what I see that happens in people is, one, they realize, oh yeah, there have been times in my life when I needed help or when people were good to me. And so even if right now I feel like I'm drowning and I'm disconnected from everyone, like that hasn't always been my story. And then the other thing is that as people share, other people are like, oh yeah, that reminds me of this time in my life. And you just find that this joy bubbles up. As clergy, a lot of clergy are are trained and even lay leaders who are elders in the church and everything are trained in crisis care, but we're not necessarily trained in how to help people to focus on joy and to cultivate more, you know, and to rejoice in their lives. And that's another part of our work as, as you know, like in pastoral care that's important. I mean, essentially what you're describing is how do we help people find and turn on that flashlight that you described earlier, right? How do yes. we help them find it, turn it on, and be able to shine that light in a way that helps them cultivate joy, discover the joy that's trying to break into mm-hmm, their mm-hmm. life? Yeah, to see the the, the meaning, the truth, yeah. the beauty, the goodness around them. You know, it's uh, we live we live especially in a time in this nation and in the world. I mean, with everything from like what happened last week in Laguna Beach and Buffalo to Ukraine to the baby formula shortage, like we just live in a time that's like so devastating. And yet, as Christians, we also must cling, I think, in order to resist despair to the idea that like, okay, but there's still truth to be found. There is still goodness to be found. Mm -hmm. There is still beauty that my life is still meaningful. There's still meaning in this community. You know, we still have one another. I don't know. There's that we have to cling to these things and look for these things to resist, you know, despair. Yeah. Well, that, that prompts the question then, Angela, because I mean, in so many ways, you're, you're approaching this in terms of helping people find their flashlight, uh, find that way in which they can kind of expose joy within their own lives or locate joy in their own lives. Is there a role for the church to be able to do that for a culture that is locked out of joy? I mean, you do have all of the things that you were just talking about that, that impinge on all of us and, and kind of shape our worldview. How does, how does the church or how does the Christian faith then become an agent of joy? Absolutely. It's a, I think that is might be like the question of our time, honestly, because I think that when people think about the church, that's not necessarily the, the thing that comes to mind is that we are communities of joy. And yet Alexander Schwemann, the priest, argues that, I mean, he says like joy is the tonality of Christianity. Mm-hmm. It's how it sounds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> May it be so. And so I, my invitation to everyone listening is to ask the question as a community, what would it look like for joy to be the way that our community sounds? And for each community, I think that that looks different. But I think that you, I think that engaging in, in the gateways that I've just mentioned is one way to start being that kind of community. But I also, I know of... Uh, a church out in Los Angeles that is an Episcopal church. And one of the things that they do once a month, and it's such a simple practice, and yet I found it to be just so awesome. And once a month during the church service on Sunday mornings, they say, the priest says, you know, hey, if you have something to rejoice about, we want you to come to the front and tell us, what are you rejoicing over? What are you like? What's bringing you joy? 
and everybody lined and I, I mean, when I was there, it was like 25 people surrounded him and every single person, like, um, my son just graduated from high school. We rejoice with you. Um, I just, um, I'm in remission from cancer. We rejoice with you. Like I got a new job. We rejoice with you. And it was just so, I mean, it just, and you know, it was so beautiful to see this church that didn't, because I've seen a lot of churches that people can stand up and give a prayer request. And I think that's powerful when churches pray for each other like that. I had never seen a church though, that so intentionally rejoiced with people. And it was awesome. It was like impossible not to smile for like all 25 people. We're like, we rejoice with you. Yes. So I think it's simple things like that and like the other gateways that I was talking about that like, how do we cultivate practices in our community that help us to be more joyful when we're together? And that's the thing about joy is that it's contagious. Mm-hmm. We can catch it, you know, it's infectious. And so when mm-hmm. other people are joyful, when other people are rejoicing, we it's very difficult not to want to join them. And, um, and so I, I think that it's, it's really about those kind of practices. Another thing that I encourage Christian communities to do is to create a joy wall mm-hmm. in, in, their, in their building somewhere where people, and it can be an art installation, basically. And so it could look a lot of different ways. You could do a chalkboard wall. You could do a whiteboard wall. You could do one that's um, where people can do, you know, I mean, it could be one that um, changes all the time, but I like the idea of saying to people, when you have, when you've, like, when something brings you joy, please write it on the wall. And you might start it during an actual worship service when you're talking about joy. And then just say, could everybody go to the wall at some point and write something that brings you joy or something that you're rejoicing over? And then as people over the weeks are interacting, please keep adding to this wall. And also as you see, Two people write stuff that's similar to each other. You can draw a line between it and then maybe draw a line, your own line and say like this reminds, you know, and this and show how our joy is connected. And so there's all sorts of ways I think that we can start to do this, but it really, really begins when a pastor or a lay leader says we need, like it's, it has, it starts with intentionality. Like I would love for this over this next year for our community to be known like as by, by our joy, like what would it look like for us to commit over the next year or two to say our community is going to be known for our joy because that's when the flashlight starts. Okay. We are going to put our light on, like we are going to look for this with one another and as a community together. And so um, it's very important. All emotions need permission. So it really Mm. starts, right? Okay. So sadness, fear, anger, joy, all, every emotion needs permission. We need permission from ourselves to feel it openly and deeply, and we need permission from other people. And so joy and a joyful community starts with permission and intentionality. I love it. I know the work that you're doing at Truett really has to do about what it means to be the church today and into the future. And and I know you're drawing on all the work you've done around joy, but so many other parts of your ministry that have come together in this. Will you talk a little bit about your work at Truett? Yes. We just received a research grant to look at four major areas that we think are essential to the the church thriving for uh, years to come. So four areas that we're focused on in our work, it's called the Future Church Project, and so we, we asked, Dustin Benick is my colleague and partner in this effort, as he also teaches at Baylor. And so Dustin and I were thinking together, you know, what are the four main areas that, one, we're, we're both, we both feel like we can research and connect with people over, but two, that the church really needs in order to thrive. And so one of those areas, and we call them like the four pillars of the Future Church Project or the programs of the Future Church And one is collaborative leadership. Mm. So we think that that is the future of the church. And we are eager to find people who are already doing this. Um, And so if you're a church that is, if this is how you work, if there's not just one person that's at the top and then there's a hierarchy, but if there's more of a collaborative model of leadership, we want to hear from you. We want to know how that's working and going for you because we think that, collective intelligence is a thing that we are smarter and better together 
Mm-hmm. We also think that hierarchy and the sort of idea of just like one person running everything also works against our new media culture. And so really we, we, we have entered into, in the last couple of decades, a much more participatory relational culture because of new media. And so Dustin and I model that by being called, you know, co-director to the program for the Future Church. And so that's one area, collaborative leadership, that we really want to explore more. What are the best practices of collaborative leadership? How do we do this well? A second area that we're looking at is youth and emerging adults. It's obviously very difficult for a church to thrive if they don't have young people that they're raising up in the faith. We're really discouraged by the number of religious duns in the United States, Hmm. Um, how many people have grown up in church but then are done with it once they hit 20 or 25 and have become really disillusioned by it, frustrated by it. And so we're asking, how do we reconnect with religious duns? And, um, and then also religious nuns, more and more N-O-N-E-S, more and more young people are growing up never having participated in a religious tradition in the United States. And so how do we think about discipleship and witness with youth and emerging adults, sort of discipleship in a new key is what I'm calling it. So that's another area we're looking at. And so again, we're, we're very much an appreciative inquiry sort of model. And what I mean by that is that we're looking for communities that are doing these things well and saying, how do we learn from what's going well and what's going right? And so appreciating, we're looking for what we can appreciate about. So we're looking for communities. If there, if you have a community where you're thriving by and you're able to engage with youth and emerging adults. We want to know what's going well there. And then um, a third pillar of our program or for the, of the future church project is pedagogy. And so that's deeply connected to the youth and emerging adults thing. We're thinking more about how do we make worship services more participatory? Worship services have largely for several centuries been quite passive on the part of congregants. There's a lot of like one person talking on stage or whatever. There's many words we could use for that. But like there's one person up front talking and everybody else is listening. At times you might kneel or you might bow your head to pray or you might sing. But we're saying, how do we make it more of a dialogue versus a monologue? How do we make it more dynamic and interactive? And so we're thinking more about just uh, formation as more participatory in that area. And then the final area is we're looking specifically at what we call lived experience, but two areas that we're really concerned with and that we want to research in the next few years is crisis. How do we respond well to crisis? And then to the intersection of spiritual and mental health. Because what we're seeing is that in the significant rise of religious duns and nuns in the United States, there's also been this significant rise in depression, anxiety, and despair. And Dr. Lisa Miller at Columbia argues that these two things are correlated. Mm-hmm. As a scientist, she's been able to prove that these things are correlated, that, that, that as our spiritual health declines, our mental health declines. Yeah. And so we want to be able to talk more about how do we address these things in meaningful ways. And so the Future Church Project is not only interested in these four pillars, but we're interested in, a, in piloting solutions. We don't want to just talk about what's wrong. We really want to find like solutions and like ways to move forward together. Like how do we do collaborative leadership well? How do we te- do discipleship in a new key? How do we be more participatory in our worship services and other church programming? And how do we address crisis and the intersection of spiritual and mental health in meaningful ways? That feels like such important work, Angela. And we'll be sure in the show notes to put a link to to you so folks can communicate with you if they're interested in those questions or if they know of or part of ministries that are that are doing those things. Because what I know Absolutely. about you is you really want this to be a conversation with with practitioners, folks who are living it and doing it. And so, yes, there's several different ways that you could. So if you would, if you think that your church is thriving in one of these areas and you would love to be a part of a collaboratory where we're going to all expenses paid, come and share with us, please reach out. If you would love to do a training in at, at the intersection of spiritual and mental health, and you work with young people, I'm going to be doing, it'll be a free training that I'm going to be doing in this next year with Dory Baker. And so together we're 
we're from Forum for Theological Exploration. We're going to do we're uh, we're partnering to create a model. Uh, we're working with the, the folks at Columbia too, and so we're going to be doing a free training for youth workers in spring 2023, and then. Um, also, I have a book club on Facebook. Like if you're on Facebook and you are grieving my sister who lost her son, Steph and I have started the Grief Warriors book club on Facebook. And so you can join our book club and we grieve well together online. And so you can follow me on Instagram at Angela Gorell. I love to partner with other Christian leaders, um, uh, lay leaders and clergy learn from you. That's awesome. Thank you, Angela. I love it. I love the work that you're doing. I'm so grateful. And, um, actually this, what you've been describing is, is a great lead into our last, our final question that we're asking all of our guests during this season. Mm-hmm. And as you know, we've been using Gil's monograph as kind of the base for this conversation and, and really thinking about what are those bones, if you will, those core truths, values, practices that the church is carrying forward in, into the future that, that kind of is the essence of who we are and our identity and our purpose. And so ask you, when you imagine the church 20, 30 years from now, say, you know, for these next generations, what do you hope is true? There are so many things. And when you told me you were going to ask me this question, my mind went to several different places. And I was just like, I hope all these things are true. Mm. Um, and certainly, I think it would, it's, it goes without saying that I obviously hope that the church we're known for our joy because um, that we're known as people who against all odds are able to allow joy in and allow it to find us. But also I think, you know, to just be nostalgic for acts for a moment and maybe (laughs) I hope that we're known as communities that just, we take care of each other in our neighborhoods that people say, you know, the church is a place where if you have a need, like it's met. And that that's where we start with one another is that we are like, you know, in this community, we share, we're generous, we take care of one another mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physical needs. Like we, we come together and make sure that, yeah, that there's no need among us. Beautiful. Thank you, Angela. Thank you for the joy with which you do this work and um, and for being so real and hopeful. I, I think it makes a difference. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Angela. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Igniting Imagination is a production of the Leadership Ministry Team at Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation with excellent editing support from TruthWork Media. Check out our show notes and website for more information about all our guests and how you can follow them. I'm Blair Thompson-White, and from all of us at Leadership Ministry, thanks for listening.